Amen. Well, good evening, church. Welcome. You may be seated and welcome Suffolk. You've already been welcomed, but I wanted to say it again because it is so cool to see all of those familiar faces out there. So um, if you are visiting with us tonight, um, I, I want to introduce myself. My name is David Godwin, and I'm the student ministries. Well, thank you, Jordan Kimball. <laughs> I'm the student ministries pastor at, uh, at City Life. And, um, and uh, you know, Pastor Fred is out on vacation. He's with his uh, family, probably on some boat somewhere or in somebody's water, right? Uh, they love the water. And so um, they're having a good time. And so it just gives me this awesome opportunity to be able to preach tonight. And so I'm so excited to do it. So... Uh, I want to jump in. We're uh, in a series right now at Revolution Church called Force of Habit. And um, uh, we're in this series because really it's the summertime and in the summer, you know, uh, for our students, right, when they go to school, it's like everything is decided for them. It's routine. They wake up at six o'clock. It's the same classes and it's the same thing. Everything is habitual. Everything is routine. And, uh, and summer just kind of gives you this re- reprieve, right? It gives you this release from from your normal schedule, your routines, your habits. And it's even true of us as adults, right? Hopefully you're taking family vacations like the slaughters. I'm super jealous of y'all in Puerto Rico and right and and taking a break from the norm. And so at City or at uh, Revolution Church, we've just been focused on habits and, uh, and what the Bible has to say about that. And so without further ado, I want to just jump right into uh, to Daniel chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there um, and, and follow along with us because this is really where we're going to kind of stay tonight. And so if you're lazy, the, the verses are on the screen, but then that means you have to trust me that I'm, I'm not making these verses up. So um, otherwise, if you want to follow along, you can, you can follow in your Bible or on your app on your phone. But we're in Daniel chapter 6, starting with verse 1. And it says, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. So Darius is the, the new king of the new Persian empire. And so the king also chose Daniel and two others as, an, as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. But then the administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. They were jealous, envious of of Daniel. But it says they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. And so the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius, right? They were really hamming it up to get in his good graces. And they say, we are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, everyone but Daniel, right? That the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, they're like ingratiating themselves over and over again. Your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And so, King Darius signed the law. And listen to this. 
verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Let's pray. Father God, may you find us to be people, Lord, who reflect you. God, people who worship you with every breath as we just sang tonight. God, let it be that our habits reflect our our love and our worship for you. God, I pray that as we're in your presence tonight, Holy Spirit, that you do what only you can do to free people from the captivity of bad habits and addictions. Lord God, that you would come and you would speak even to me as I preach. Lord God, let our, our, our ears be open, our eyes be open to what you want to speak and what you want to show us. God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we like participation at City Life Church. So I'm going to come down there and ask a couple questions. But before we do, I want to give a quick shout out. She's going to kill me to Alexis Mitchell because it's her birthday. So give it up to Alexis, one of our RC youth. We're not going to sing to you. If this was RC, we would, but we're not. Um, so now that I'm down here, so, so just speaking of habits, what are some, when you think of common habits, like what are some common habits that come to mind? You can raise your hand, uh, even habits that you uh, have yourself, but uh, raise your hand or shout it out all the way in the back, Alexis. Biting your fingernails, right? Anybody else? Somebody over here? Reading is a habit. Good. Anybody else? Jamal. The snooze button. Yes and amen, <laughs> right? Yes. Starbucks is a habit, officially. Saying um or uh. Um, uh, like, right, all that stuff. Uh, any other habits out there? Yeah, Jordan. What is that? Gla- See, he's trying to call me out. That's all right, Jordan, that's fine. Yeah, glazed donuts on Sunday morning. I might have a habit. Uh, any, any, just a couple more. Habits, common habits. That's not so common. Common habits, yeah, Shani. Oh my gosh, like a hundred million times. Yes, when you're traveling, making sure that your, your wallet and your passport is exactly where it's supposed to be. I definitely do that. One more. Anybody else? Emily. Checking your phone constantly, right? Like anybody do that? Scrolling or liking? I, I've seen our youth, no names, but I've literally watched our youth just scroll through the phone and literally like every picture that they see. Like there's no time to even consume, absorb what they're looking at and they're liking everything, right? So yeah, we're familiar with with habits. We know what habits are, but I want to look tonight, kind of just define for us, uh, uh, for our purposes, what what, what parts of habits, what characteristics of habits um, I want to focus on. So so let's define habits and let's see how maybe we can see some of this stuff at work in, in the things that you guys have just shared. So first of all, habits are automatic. The dictionary.com says an acquired, uh, habits are an acquired behavior pattern regularly followed until it has become almost involuntary. Everybody in here knows uh, what, it, what it feels like to have a habit that is involuntary. And if you don't, you will when you get married, right? Because once you're married, then you all of a sudden realize all of these things that you do that you didn't realize you do, right? For me, it's, it's I love my wife. She's, but uh, for me, it was popping gum. 
I never knew this, but my whole life, every time I'm chewing gum, I'm popping. Most people like blow bubble gum, but, but I'm like sucking the air in and I'm making all these noises and I don't know this, right? It's involuntary, it's automatic. And, and, and trust me, I wish that I could stop because then my wife would not threaten to kick me out the car, right? But, but it's involuntary, habits are automatic. Habits are pervasive. I heard this story in connection to habits that goes something like there, uh, there's uh, this, uh, this uh, school of young fish that would swim past an old fish every morning. And every morning, the old fish would, would call out to the young fish, hey, how's the water? And every morning, the young fish would swim by with no response, right? And, uh, and so every day, it, it kept happening. The, the, the young fish would swim by the old fish, and the old fish would say, hey, how's the water and no response until finally one day one of the young fish stops and he says to the old fish, what's water, right? What is water? Water to fish is like all around them. It's, 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 it's taken for granted, right? They don't have to think about it, but at the same time, it's essential, right? They need it to move. They need it to stay afloat. For us, the same is true of habits, our habits are, are things that are all around us constantly that we are unaware of, and yet they are the things that keep us afloat. There's a study uh, done by Duke University that's confirmed and other studies done that say the same exact thing, that at least 40% of all human activities, all of our actions are habits. And you might think, wow, that's a really high number. Almost half of everything that we do is a habit, but if you rewind back to the, the day that you first learned how to drive, anybody in here can rewind back to that day and how terrified you were behind the wheel, right? And every little thing you thought about, you thought about where does my foot go, right? How do I turn this engine on? What is, how, how do I back up? Am I going to hit the garbage, right? You're thinking about if my mom were here tonight, she would tell you about how bad I was at merging and every merge was just this like really intense focus, right? And navigating because you've always been a passenger. You've never had to remember how to get home. And so, and so, right, that was when you started, but now I live 30 minutes away. And when I leave for work, I sometimes pull up into my driveway and I'm like, how did I get here? Right? My, I'm thinking about other things. And, and that's because 40% of what we do is habit, right? Our brains, and, and, and this is necessary, our brains uh, do this so that they could, the conscious brain delegates to our habitual brain all of these habits that it knows is good so that it can concentrate on other things, right? So when you're driving, you can think about the grocery list or, right, you can think about that conversation you had, you can pay attention to the cheeseburger in your hand, right? And, uh, and not have to think about every little detail. So habits, they're automatic, they're pervasive, and habits are not neutral. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You know, it's not an accident that when I asked you all what are some common habits, that most of your answers were bad habits, right? Right? Most of your answers were things that you just wish that you could not do. When, when we think of habits, we think about biting our nails, right? We think about <laughs> Starbucks, right? We think even about smoking. We think about uh, cursing, maybe if that's a habit for you, scrolling on your phone, things that we know if they persist, they will result in bad consequences. We're keenly aware of bad habits because we know if I keep eating like this, if I keep 
texting like this, if I keep doing this, then it's going to lead to something not good. There's a, a book that I just recently read by a guy named Justin Whitmell Early, who is actually pretty local. He uh, lives in the Richmond area. And uh, the book is called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And uh, it's an amazing book. It's a really quick read. Um, and in my notes, I have a little link to the website so that if you're um, looking at the notes later on, you can, you can click that link and, and read the book. But, but in this book, he argues that habits are not neutral. In fact, he argues that habits are actually worship, that habits are liturgy. If you're maybe only familiar with more contemporary churches or non-denominational churches like ours, you might be unfamiliar with the, the word liturgy, but liturgy, liturgy literally <laughs> means a pattern of words or actions repeated regularly as a way of worship. And the goal of a liturgy is for the participant to be formed in a certain way. What Justin argues in his book is that the only difference between a habit and a liturgy is that liturgies actually admit their worship, right? It's the same thing. A liturgy is a pattern of words or actions repeated regularly, habit, as a way of worship. Liturgies are aware that they are worship, but for those of us who have that bad habit of texting or cursing or, or, or Starbucks, right, what we're unaware of is the fact that we're actually worshiping something. Habits are not neutral. If you don't believe me, he's got um, a, a chart in this book and some examples. He gets pretty uh, vulnerable and transparent in the book. And he kind of goes through his day and, and talks about, like, what are some daily habits that he has and what does that say about what he actually believes? And so he says his first habit, I think there's a, yeah, there's a chart up there. His first habit is to wake up exhausted again because I never get to bed on time. What does that say? What, is, what does he what does that say about what he believes? The liturgy of wrong belief is that I am not a creature. I am infinite. My body will be fine. I am a God. His next habit, maybe you can relate, is to look at work emails on my phone before getting out of bed. Or for some of you, right, scrolling through Instagram or checking your notifications. What is the liturgy of wrong belief there? It says that what you believe is I can miss a quiet time. But I can't miss a quick response. Unless I'm well-regarded in the office or among my friends, I'm not worth anything. What you're worshiping is this belief that your, 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 your value is in the hands of other people's uh, likes or responses. Next habit is to grab breakfast on the go in the morning and to eat lunch at his desk at work. Liturgy of or wrong belief is being too busy is normal and maybe even desirable. I'm important. If a lot of people want my time to stay important, I need to stay busy. And that means being late and to not have community while I eat, right? Last one, keep all computer notifications turned on and keep my phone on and notifications on and insight all the time. I got to take it everywhere with me, even to the bathroom, right? And what that says is that I need to know what's going on out there at all times. The most recent thing is the most important thing. The best way to love my neighbors is to stay updated on dramatic headlines and new memes, not to do focused work. Habits are not neutral. Habits are liturgies. Habits are worship. They say something to you, communicate something to you about what you believe. And so tonight, I want to look 
at a story, actually a positive example of habits, because I love what Kim Tree said. She was one of the only ones that, that gave a habit that was positive, right? Reading can be a, a positive habit, but we typically, when we think about habits, we, we think negatively. And so, and so Daniel, here we have this story of someone who, who has good habits, and for him and for us, it, it demonstrates for us a few things. And so first thing I, I want to talk about is that Daniel is actually a story of resisting. Jumping into the story at verse 4. It says, they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. Remember the advisors to the king, the enemies of Daniel. They were looking for some fault in his character, right? Looking for ways to shame him before the king. But it says... All they found is that he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. See, what the king's advisors knew is that they could do nothing about Daniel's character. Why? Because character is fruit, and, and there can't, there's nothing that can be done about fruit, right? If you take someone to an apple tree and you try to convince them that it's not an apple tree, and they look up in the branches and they see apples, right? You're going to have a hard time. And even if you go to the tree and you cut all the apples off and, and they're not there for a time, like someone could mar your reputation by saying false things about you, over time the apples are going to come back, right? And so there's nothing that can be done about character. There's nothing that can be done about fruit. But See, the, ad, the uh, advisors of the king were, were smart. I hate that the villains in this story are intelligent because they picked up on this principle of life. They realized they had to ask themselves this question, what produces this fruit of character in Daniel's life? They had to figure out not just what the fruit is, but what produces it and how can we disrupt it? They knew this character or this uh, principle that good character is the fruit reaped of good habits sown. Good character is the fruit reaped of good habits sown. There's this quote, um, not by, but made popular by Stephen Covey in his, in his book on habits called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it says, you probably have heard it or some version of it before. It says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. What is he saying? He's saying, whatever you think about becomes what you do. And whatever you do over and over again becomes a habit. And whatever your habits are, they become your character. And whatever your character is, well, that determines, like Romans 6, right, your destiny. It's either going to lead you to life or it's going to lead you to death. And so this is why in the story, the advisors of the kings, the enemies of, of Daniel who were envious of, of his good character, they knew that they couldn't do anything about his character, so this is what they, they did. They did the next best thing. They're interested in his character, so what they're going to do is they're actually going to look at his habits. And so that's why they say, let's come after the rules of his religion. So let's just stop here for a second because I think sometimes we read the Bible quickly and we... Um, you know, when we see things that are maybe kind of weird or different from our context, we tend to glaze over them and not think about it. But our understanding of rules generally is typically like 
like a list of, of right or wrong things to do, right? We, we generally think about rules, or your translation in your Bible might even translate it as laws, right? We think about rules, we think about laws as, as things that um, tell us what is morally right and wrong. What, it tells us what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And generally, if we're talking about laws, right, they, they have some bearing on our lives, but, but really it's just kind of like, for, for the people, for the good of the order, for the good of the people. When we think about rules, we think about the Ten Commandments. When we think about rules or laws, we think about speed limits, right, and stop signs and, and things like that. But based on the context of, of this story and what we, we, we see that the advisors mean by rules of his religion, I think it's, it's more like a rule of life, less like uh, do's and do nots, less like Ten Commandments, less like uh, things like that, and more like a rule of life. So this phrase, a rule of life, may be unfamiliar to you. I'm just kind of getting to learn it myself, and he talks about it in this book, and there are lots of, of books out there that talk about what a rule of life is and how it's different maybe from uh, our understanding of laws or rules. And a rule of life uh, definition is spiritual, relational, vocational rhythms. Peter Scazzaro, in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says, it's an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. What I, how I would define it is that it's habits that keep you conscious of Christ throughout your day. When they were coming at Daniel's rules, what they were doing is they were coming after his habits. They were coming after the rhythms of his life that kept him conscious of God throughout the day. There's a rich history in Christian tradition dating back to the monastic movement of the 4th century where this, and actually even before that in the West, it started in the 4th century in the East, in Africa, it started in the 3rd century and we just kind of ripped it off of them. Um, but they learned that, that when they were creating monasteries, the monks of the, the day in the 4th century, when the monastic movement was going on in the Western world, they were setting rules of life. And even today, if you go to a monastery and you, uh, you, you know, spend some time there, what you'll find is that the people in that monastery, they live according to a rule of life. And the rule of life is not like the Ten Commandments, right or wrong, do or do not. It's not morals. It's like, what time are you going to get up to brush your teeth, right? Like, what time are you going to eat? What time are you going to say your prayers? How are you going to say your prayers? Where are you going to say your prayers? If you go to a monastery, a rule of life defines the rhythms of that particular monastery. And so this idea of a rule of life came into being from these monasteries within uh, this monastic movement. And monasticism, it was actually a response to, this, uh, to the culture around them. In the fourth century, up until this point in Christian history, Christians had always been persecuted, right? And thanks to Constantine, by the fourth century, the Christians were, were no longer persecuted, but actually protected. They were uh, embraced by the culture around them. And what Christians in the fourth century, when they were looking around the church, what they were realizing is that now that our culture has become comfortable with us, we've become comfortable with our culture as well. They realized that the secularism, that the permissiveness, right, that the pluralism of the world around them was seeping into the church. And so there were Christians that said, you know what we got to do? We got to isolate ourselves, got to remove ourselves from this culture, set up these monasteries, create rules of life that give us rhythms, constantly bringing us back to Christ. And so the idea of a rule of life in the monastic movement, it was a rejection of the cultural habits of the day. 
In Daniel's context, the Babylonian and Persian empires in which Daniel lived, they persecuted the believers of God by forcing the Jews to privatize their faith, right? So this was, these were polytheistic empires and governments, and so that meant that they had lots of gods and, and worshiped lots of gods, and they were cool with all of these gods, but they really just wanted you to keep your god private. And when you're in the public square, like think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or the VeggieTales version, if you will, right? But when you think about that, that movie or that story in Scripture, right, they're faced with the idol in the town square, and when you're here is what the uh, 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 empire was telling them. When you're out here, what you have to do is you have to at least fake it. you got to assimilate with what we're doing. You can believe however you want to believe, but out here, you've got to live like us. It's what Tim Keller calls the pressure of pluralism. In the modern-day American context, Our political laws, they afford us the freedom of religion, but our culture still shouts constantly at us. You've got to live like us. You've got to live like us. And it attempts, just like Daniel's enemies whispering in the ear of the king, it attempts to assimilate us to its culture by replacing the rules, the rhythms, the, the, the spiritual disciplines of our religion with other rules, other habits. So there's another book that I haven't read, so I can't necessarily recommend, but I um, was watching a, a video and, and stumbled upon um, his research on this stuff. But it's a guy called, uh, named Cal Newport, and he's got a book called The uh, Digital Minimalism. And in that book, he argues that social media is the new smoking, basically, right? That social media, that likes are equivalent to cigarettes, that we have become addicted. And this is not news to anybody, right? We've become addicted to likes and shares and notifications and all of that stuff. But he also argues in the book that it's not just the similarities between uh, the tobacco industry and, and, and social media is not just our addiction to the product itself. There's also a similarity in the industries, that just like tobacco companies intentionally lace their stuff with all kinds of chemicals to make their customers addicted so that they can get their money, all of these social media conglomerates, they intentionally addict us to their stuff, right? So that we can be on there four hours a day. Back when Facebook was starting uh, and, you know, Please, and my wife was trying to find my MySpace page the other day, and thank God it is no longer exists, right? But if you can think that far back to Facebook, back in the day, I had a Facebook like right fresh when it started, right when I went to college, and nobody but college students had it back then. And Facebook was a thing, right? Like people used it, but it's, it was far from what Facebook is today. And what Cal Newport says is that The reason why we've gone from checking our Facebook every once in a while to now spending hours on it every day is because they've added features intentionally to keep us hooked. It wasn't until they put the like button. It wasn't until you got notifications every time you were mentioned in a picture. It wasn't until all of this drama and divisiveness is promoted on your page, right, that you were stuck, glued to your phone, The story of Daniel for us, it's a reminder that we have got to actively resist the force of habits that are at work in our culture. Because guess what? 
our culture is actively, it's like the, the enemies of Daniel, the advisors of the king. It was not by accident. It was not by happenstance. They devised a plan intentionally to disrupt his character. And I'm not trying to, I'm a, I use social media. I'm not trying to go against social media or anything like that. But what I will say is that we know that the battle, right, is not just against flesh and blood, but it's spiritual. And so just as Daniel had an enemy, you have an enemy. And just as Daniel had uh, people whispering into the king's ear, right, trying to look at all the faults, look at all the cracks, bring shame to Daniel, you have an enemy whispering in your ear day in, day out, trying to convince you that your character is something different than it is. But you can't do anything about character. And so what does the devil do? The devil comes at our habits. It's not going to come at your character. He's going to come at your habits. And so the story of Daniel for us is a reminder that we have to actively resist because there's someone actively coming after our habits. If you've never resisted the pressure of cultural habits around you, you're spending hours a day on, on social media and you're like, what's the big deal? What it means is that you've most likely given in, right? You've given in to the trap. And I'm not trying to come at anybody. This is me myself, right? I'm learning all of this stuff and working on this myself. And so Daniel demonstrates what it looks like to resist the forces of habit dictated to us by culture around us because it's intentional and we should be too. So Daniel, it's a story of resisting, but it's also a story of remaining. So you're left with the question, okay, our culture and our enemy is actively against our habits, and we've got to resist. What does it look like to resist? We can't isolate ourselves from the secular world like the monks did in the fourth century because we know that God has called us to be a part of the world, a part of our culture. John 17, uh, Jesus was praying to God, and he said, they don't belong to the world any more than I do, and yet I am sending them into the world. We're called to be in the world, a part of the world, and yet... God says that we don't belong to the world. This is something that Daniel knew very well. Daniel was literally kidnapped from his culture, from his friends, from his religion, from the people who spoke his language and abducted and brought into another kingdom, another culture. And Daniel was a part of that world. He received an education in the king's School. He received the pagan name that was given to him by the king. He got a job in that world. He sat at the king's table where everyone around him was eating stuff he was prohibited to eat. He probably had friends, neighbors, colleagues, right? People who were magicians and sorcerers who were, were doing things he couldn't be a part of. He even served within the Babylonian government to advance it. See, this is what Daniel knew. As much as he was in the world, even more so, he needed to remain in God. If we look at verse 10, jumping back into the story, it says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, <laughs> I love this. It says, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Sometimes when we read the story, we make the mistake of looking at this moment and thinking of it as like a, a moment of activism. 
that, that this is, like he was intentionally do it to like stick it to the man, right? I'm going to pray in front of the window and I'm going to, you know, uh, it's, this is my protest against the king. But what was really happening was Daniel was just waking up. It was just another day for him as, as, as much as it was a rhythm of his life to go brush his teeth in the morning. That's how much of a rhythm in his life it was to pray at that same spot, in that same direction, those same three times a day. What compelled him to resist against the culture of the day and to do what he knew what was right, even though the culture around him was screaming, even threatening that literally for him, he would die if he resisted. He did it anyway. And this is because he knew how to remain in God. In Daniel, we have an example of what it looks like, uh, a personal example, but Jesus gives us another example in John 15, not a person, but a plant. He gives us an example of what it looks like to remain in God when the world around you is begging for you to die, when the world around you wants you to, to bear bad fruit. This is what it says in John 15, verses three through four. It says, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says in verse four, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. What I want you to know is that, and what I'm not saying is that you can make your way into righteousness or right standing with God by good habits or good character, or if you try hard enough or you do enough good stuff, then you could be made right with God. Then that, that's what grafts you into the vine. That's as ridiculous as a separate individual branch trying to graft itself into the vine. But what the Bible says is that God himself, the gardener, took us, the individual branches, and grafted us, did an impossible work with Jesus's death on the cross, right? His forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. And because of Jesus's sacrifice, because of the gift of grace, we're able to produce fruit because he's in us. And so that's a gift. He says to the disciples, you've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. And yet we're given this responsibility. He says, remain in me. As much, you know, we have as Christians, there's nothing that you can do, right? To, to, to not, to fall out of favor with God, your grace covers you. But there is something that you can do, right, to mess with the fruit of your life. The Bible says to remain in him. And what that fruit is, he goes on to say that what the fruit is, it's glory to him, right? The fruit gives God glory. I'm going to call the band up. So I'm not a gardener. <laughs> so every time, you know, when I'm doing this story, I had to look at all of these different commentaries because I have no idea what it means to graft a branch into a vine or, you know, what, what it's like to, to um, try to, to, you know, see fruit or prune a vine. I don't even know really what that is, <laughs> right? But um, it's clear that I'm not a gardener because uh, my wife and I, we've tried before to have a garden in our backyard. Uh, I don't know if it was like, like an HGTV kick or like a health kick or what it was, but we wanted to have a tomato plant for whatever reason, because we like tomatoes, right? And so we had done some research, emphasis on some research. We had done some research. And in the little bit of research we found, we, we found that 
if you want to have big, juicy tomatoes, if you want to have red, ripe tomatoes, what you want to do is you want to have a big pot. And so we went to Lowe's and we got a big pot. We got soil. We even got the, the, uh, the fertilizer, the tomato food that comes with it, right? We were looking at all that. They have a million different tomato seeds that you can pick from. And we're just like, I'm going to pick the one with the biggest, reddest, juiciest tomato on the paper package. And right, this is what we're going to get. And so um, you probably can guess what happened, right? We, and I should just tell you this so that you can appreciate our sacrifice. We are not nature people. We're not outdoor people. We hate the heat. We hate the humidity, right? And so every day, right, or probably every day, maybe, I don't know, but most days we would go out and we would, we would water the tomato plant and we would, we would sprinkle the fertilizer, the tomato food on it. We would whisper to our little tomato plant and we were doing all the things we thought that we were doing to produce big, juicy, red fruit. And after weeks, I'm talking about weeks, days of going out into that godforsaken humidity, right? And whispering to our tomato plant in our big pot. What happened was we had two tiny little tomatoes, like grape tomatoes, like the kind that you can go to the store and buy in the dozens for like $3, right? And we're like, this is for the birds. We're not doing this. We're not meant to be tomato garden people. And so we'll just buy ours from Food Line. Thank you very much. But the other day, I was over at our neighbor's house and we were walking by and they have this beautiful trellis that's just full of big, ripe, red, juicy tomatoes. And of course, not knowing our story, he was like, oh, we have plenty. We have more than we need. Whenever you want a tomato, you can just come on over. I'm like, great. It's good to know it was that easy for you, right? (laughs) But what I remembered in that moment was this fact, that tomatoes, in order for them to be big, juicy, fruitful, ripe, not only do they need a big pot, but they also need some sort of support system. They need a wooden stick, or they need a fence, or they need a string, or they need a cage. They need something that allows their, their, the vine to grow. If they don't, right, the fruit gets too heavy, and it, it wants to go up, but it can't. And so if you just leave it to itself, it'll be produce small fruit, which is what was happening to us. Earlier, we talked about the difference between our understanding of the word rule and and how this idea of a rule of life differs from that. If you look at where the word rule comes from in the English language, it actually derives from an old Latin word called regula. That means a wooden stick. It means a guidepost, a railing, a support system. Can I tell you? It is ultimately the vine that produces the the fruit, right? It's ultimately the vine. It's ultimately Christ who produces the fruit in and through you. But it's the spiritual disciplines that support your relationship with him that causes you to keep him central in your life. If you want to bear fruit, you need some rules. And not just so that you can brag to other people about how good you are. You need a rule of life. You need some rhythms. You need some spiritual discipline so that you are constantly staying connected to the vine. That's what it's about. And so tonight, as we move into a time of worship, I just want to offer an invitation 
If you're looking at your life, maybe you're looking at the fruit of your life, your character, and you're thinking to yourself, man, why is it that I'm producing bad fruit? At City Life, we have a, a discipleship uh, model called Praxis, and if you're interested, if you don't already have one, I can give you that book later, but we, we have virtues called the 24 Virtues, and they're the characteristics of Christ. It's what we hope to see in ourselves as we stay connected to the vine, and it's stuff like, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, so love, joy, peace, right, kindness, and self-control, and if you're looking at your life and you're like, I don't see love, I don't see joy, I don't see peace, I don't see self-control, I don't see these things, there could be a few things going on. The first thing could be this, it could be that you're not connected to the vine. And tonight, with no judgment, I just wanna give you an opportunity in a moment when we go back into worship, there are gonna be people uh, to my right and to my left, there are gonna be people uh, at the back back there who can pray for you. But if you're here tonight and you're thinking, man, I'm a branch that's dead, I'm a branch that's disconnected from Christ and I wanna attach myself to him because of Jesus, because of the grace of God, you can. And he empowers you to bear fruit in your life. And so if you haven't begun a relationship with him, we wanna give you the opportunity tonight. So please get prayer from someone down here or in the back. But maybe for the rest of you, it could be, you could say, I know Christ, I'm connected to the vine, but you know you're not doing your due diligence and resisting the forces of cultural habits at work in your life. You know that there are some habits that have got you. You know there are some things that, that are involuntary and your mind says this is bad, this isn't good, it's not healthy and yet you're, you're stuck, you're trapped. You haven't done your due diligence to resist the forces of habits and you haven't done your due diligence to remain in Him. I wanna give you a different kind of opportunity, a practical one. And so down here, uh, there's some papers, half sheets of paper uh, on the altar and uh, the SLT in the back, the people in the blue shirts, they'll have some of these as well. But if as we worship tonight, you're thinking to yourself, man, I really need some rhythms in place in my life to help keep me connected to Christ, to help keep Christ central to my life. I, I wanna encourage you to pick one of these up and what it is, just real quickly, it's just a little tool that can help you uh, uh, figure out how to incorporate what we call pathways or spiritual disciplines in your life. It's one thing to say, yeah, I wanna pray and I'll start tomorrow and then you just pray real quick. It's another thing to be intentional and say, this is what I'm gonna do daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. It's actions that create habits, right? A rule of life, it's an intentional plan to keep you close to Christ. I don't encourage you to try to do all pathways at once, right? Maybe pick one, two, or three, but the cool thing about a habit is that once you have it down, you don't have to think about it anymore, right? That 40%. Like Daniel, you begin to pray three times a day, it's no thing, right? Then you can move on to fasting or what other things there are on this list. But I just encourage you as we worship tonight, if you're challenged by this word, if you wanna incorporate a rule of life, some rhythms in your life, then I encourage you to pick one of these up from the altar or in the back from someone in the blue shirt. But let's pray and you guys can stand as we prepare to go into worship. Father God, we thank you, Lord. God, we thank you for the impossible work that you did by grafting us into the vine. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. But God, we also thank you that you want us to thrive in this life. God, we thank you that you've created us 
to be people connected to you. And in that connection, we get to bear fruit that honors you, that worships you. God, I pray that you would help us to do the due diligence, Lord, of, of, of attaching ourselves to some wooden pegs, to a trellis, to some rules of life that will help us, God, to grow into you and not break away, to grow into you and not bear crummy fruit. Help me, God, to be a person who is full and ripe and bursting with love and hope and peace and all of those virtues, God. May it be that when you look at us, God, our breath, everything we do is worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.